Section 13 of the Kerner Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phyllis Vincelli. Report of the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders. Kerner Commission Report. Section 13. Chapter 1. Profiles of Disorder. Detroit. Part 1. On Saturday evening, July 22nd, the Detroit Police Department raided five blind pigs. The blind pigs had had their origin in Prohibition days and survived as private social clubs. Often, they were after-hours drinking and gambling spots. The fifth blind pig on the raid list, the United Community and Civic League at the corner of 12th Street and Claremont, had been raided twice before. Once, ten persons had been picked up, another time, twenty-eight. A Detroit Vice Squad officer had tried but failed to get in shortly after ten o'clock Saturday night. He succeeded on his second attempt at 3.45 Sunday morning. The tactical mobile unit, the police department's crowd control squad, had been dismissed at 3 a.m. Since Sunday morning traditionally is the least troublesome time for police in Detroit and all over the country, only 193 officers were patrolling the streets. Of these, 44 were in the 10th precinct where the blind pig was located. Police expected to find two dozen patrons in the blind pig. That night, however, it was the scene of a party for several servicemen, two of whom were back from Vietnam. Instead of two dozen patrons, police found 82. Some voiced resentment at the police intrusion. An hour went by before all 82 could be transported from the scene. The weather was humid and warm. The temperature that day was to rise to 86, and despite the late hour, many people were still on the street. In short order, a crowd of about 200 gathered. In November of 1965, George Edwards, judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, and commissioner of the Detroit Police Department from 1961 to 1963, had written in the Michigan Law Review, quote, It is clear that in 1965 no one will make excuses for any city's inability to foresee the possibility of racial trouble. Although local police forces generally regard themselves as public servants with the responsibility of maintaining law and order, they tend to minimize this attitude when they are patrolling areas that are heavily populated with Negro citizens. There, they tend to view each person on the streets as a potential criminal or enemy, and all too often that attitude is reciprocated. Indeed, Hostility between the Negro communities in our large cities and the police departments is the major problem in law enforcement in this decade. It has been a major cause of all recent race riots. 
At the time of Detroit's 1943 race riot, Judge Edwards told commission investigators there was open warfare between the Detroit Negroes and the Detroit Police Department. As late as 1961, he had thought that Detroit was the leading candidate in the United States for a race riot. There was a long history of conflict between the police department and citizens. During the labor battles of the 1930s, union members had come to view the Detroit Police Department as a strike-breaking force. The 1943 riot, in which 34 persons died, was the bloodiest in the United States in a span of two decades. Judge Edwards and his successor, Commissioner Ray Girardin, attempted to restructure the image of the department. A Citizens Complaint Bureau was set up to facilitate the filing of complaints by citizens against officers. In practice, however, this bureau appeared to work little better and less enlightened and more cumbersome procedures in other cities. On 12th Street, with its high incidence of vice and crime, the issue of police brutality was a recurrent theme. A month earlier, the killing of a prostitute had been determined by police investigators to be the work of a pimp. According to rumors in the community, the crime had been committed by a vice squad officer. At about the same time, the killing of Danny Thomas, a 27-year-old Negro Army veteran, by a gang of white youths had inflamed the community. The city's major newspapers played down the story and hoped that the murder would not become a cause for increased tensions. The intent backfired. A banner story in the Michigan Chronicle, the city's Negro newspaper, began as James Meredith marched again Sunday to prove a Negro could walk in Mississippi without fear. A young woman who saw her husband killed by a white gang shouting, Niggers keep out of rogue part, lost her baby. Relatives were upset that the full story of the murder was not being told apparently in an effort to prevent the incident from sparking a riot. Some Negroes believed that the daily newspaper's treatment of the story was further evidence of a double standard, playing up crimes by Negroes, playing down crimes committed against Negroes. Although police arrested one suspect for murder, Negroes questioned why the entire gang was not held. What, they asked, would have been the result if a white man had been killed by a gang of Negroes? What if Negroes had made the kind of advances toward a white woman that the white men were rumored to have made toward Mrs. Thomas? The Thomas family lived only four or five blocks from the raided blind pig. Few minutes after 5 a.m., just after the last of those arrested had been hauled away, an empty bottle smashed into the rear window of a police car. A litter basket was thrown through the window of a store. Rumors circulated of excess force used by the police during the raid. A youth, whom police nicknamed Mr. Greensleeves, because of the color of his shirt, was shouting, We're going to have a riot! 
and exhorting the crowd to vandalism. At 5.20 a.m., Commissioner Girardin was notified. He immediately called Mayor Jerome Cavanaugh. Seventeen officers from other areas were ordered into the 10th precinct. By 6 a.m., police strength had grown to 369 men. Of these, however, only 43 were committed to the immediate riot area. By that time, the number of persons on 12th Street was growing into the thousands, and widespread window smashing and looting had begun. On either side of 12th Street were neat, middle-class districts. Along 12th Street itself, however, crowded apartment houses created a density of more than 21,000 persons per square mile, almost double the city average. The movement of people, when the slums of Black Bottom had been cleared for urban renewal, had changed 12th Street from an integrated community into an almost totally black one, in which only a number of merchants remained white. Only 18% of the residents were homeowners. 25% of the housing was considered so substandard as to require clearance. Another 19% had major deficiencies. The crime rate was almost double that of the city as a whole. A Detroit police officer told commission investigators that prostitution was so widespread that officers made arrests only when soliciting became blatant. The proportion of broken families was more than twice that in the rest of the city. By 7.50 a.m., when a 17-man police commando unit attempted to make the first sweep, an estimated 3,000 persons were on 12th Street. They offered no resistance. As the sweep moved down the street, they gave way to one side and then flowed back behind it. A shoe store manager said he waited vainly for police for two hours as the store was being looted. At 8.25 a.m., someone in the crowd yelled, "'The cops are coming!' The first flames of the riot billowed from the store. Firemen who responded were not harassed. The flames were extinguished. By mid-morning, 1,122 men, approximately a fourth of the police department, had reported for duty. Of these, 540 were in or near the six-block riot area. 108 officers were attempting to establish a cordon. There was, however, no interference with looters, and police were refraining from the use of force. Commissioner Girardin said, If we had started shooting in there, not one of our policemen would have come out alive. I am convinced it would have turned into a race riot in the conventional sense. According to witnesses, Police at some roadblocks made little effort to stop people from going in and out of the area. Bantering took place between police officers and the populace, some still in pajamas. To some observers, there seemed at this point to be an atmosphere of apathy. On the one hand, the police failed to interfere with the looting. On the other, a number of older, more stable residents, 
who had seen the street deteriorate from a prosperous commercial thoroughfare to one ridden by vice remained aloof because officials feared that the twelfth street disturbance might be a diversion many officers were sent to guard key installations in other sections of the city belle isle the recreation area in the detroit river that had been the scene of the nineteen forty three riot was sealed off in an effort to avoid attracting people to the scene some broadcasters cooperated by not reporting the riot and an effort was made to downplay the extent of the disorder the facade of business as usual necessitated the detailing of numerous police officers to protect the fifty thousand spectators that were expected at that afternoon's new york yankees detroit tigers baseball game early in the morning a task force of community workers went into the area to dispel rumors and act as counter-rioters such a task force had been singularly successful at the time of the incident in the kercheville district in the summer of nineteen sixty six when scores of people had gathered at the site of an arrest kercheville however has a more stable population fewer stores less population density and the city's most effective police community relations program the twelfth street area on the other hand had been determined in a nineteen sixty six survey conducted by dr ernest harburg of the psychology department of the university of michigan to be a community of high stress and tension an overwhelming majority of the residents indicated dissatisfaction with their environment of the interviewed ninety three per cent said they wanted to move out of the neighborhood seventy three per cent felt that the streets were not safe ninety one per cent believed that a person was likely to be robbed or beaten at night fifty eight per cent knew of a fight within the last twelve months in which a weapon had been employed thirty two per cent stated that they themselves owned a weapon fifty seven per cent were worried about fires a significant proportion believed municipal services to be inferior thirty six per cent were dissatisfied with the schools forty three per cent with the city's contribution to the neighborhood seventy seven per cent with the recreational facilities seventy eight per cent believed police did not respond promptly when they were summoned for help u s representative john conyers jr a negro was notified about the disturbance at his home a few blocks from twelfth street at eight thirty a m together with other community leaders including hubert g locke a negro and assistant to the commissioner of police he began to drive around the area in the side streets he asked people to stay in their homes on twelfth street he asked them to disperse it was by his own account a futile task numerous eyewitnesses interviewed by commission investigators tell of the care-free mood with which people ran in and out of stores looting and laughing and joking with the police officers stores with soul brother signs appeared no more immune than others 
Looters paid no attention to residents who shouted at them and called their actions senseless. An epidemic of excitement had swept over the persons on the street. Congressman Conyers noticed a woman with a baby in her arms. She was raging, cursing Whitey for no apparent reason. Shortly before noon, Congressman Conyers climbed atop a car in the middle of 12th Street to address the people. As he began to speak, he was confronted by a man in his fifties whom he had once, as a lawyer, represented in court. The man had been active in civil rights. He believed himself to have been persecuted as a result, and it was Conyers' opinion that he may have been wrongfully jailed. Extremely bitter, the man was inciting the crowd and challenging Conyers. Why are you defending the cops and the establishment? You're just as bad as they are. A police officer in the riot area told commission investigators that neither he nor his fellow officers were instructed as to what they were supposed to be doing. Witnesses tell of officers standing behind sawhorses as an area was being looted, and still standing there much later when the mob had moved elsewhere. A squad from the commando unit, wearing helmets with face-covering visors and carrying bayonet-tipped carbines, blockaded a street several blocks from the scene of the riot. Their appearance drew residents into the street. Some began to harangue them and to question why they were in an area where there was no trouble. Representative Conyers convinced the police department to remove the commandos. By that time, a rumor was threading through the crowd that a man had been bayoneted by the police. Influenced by such stories, the crowd became belligerent. At approximately 1 p.m., stonings accelerated. Numerous officers reported injuries from rocks, bottles, and other objects thrown at them. Smoke billowed upward from four fires, the first since the one at the shoe store early in the morning. When firemen answered the alarms, they became the target for rocks and bottles. At 2 p.m., Mayor Cavanaugh met with community and political leaders at police headquarters. Until then, there had been hope that, as the people blew off steam, the riot would dissipate. Now the opinion was nearly unanimous that additional forces would be needed. A request was made for state police aid. By 3 p.m., 360 officers were assembling at the armory. At that moment, looting was spreading from the 12th Street area to other main thoroughfares. There was no lack of the disaffected to help spread it. Although not yet as hard-pressed as Newark, Detroit was, like Newark, losing population. Its prosperous middle-class whites were moving to the suburbs and being replaced by unskilled Negro migrants. Between 1960 and 1967, the Negro population rose from just under 30% to an estimated 40% of the total. In a decade, the school system had gained 50,000 to 60,000 children. 
51% of the elementary school classes were overcrowded. Simply to achieve the statewide average, the system needed 1,650 more teachers and 1,000 additional classrooms. The combined cost would be $63 million. Of 300,000 school children, 171,000, or 57 percent, were Negro. According to the Detroit Superintendent of Schools, 25 different school districts surrounding the city spent up to $500 more per pupil per year than Detroit. In the inner city schools, more than half the pupils who entered high school became dropouts. The strong union structure had created excellent conditions for most working men, but had left others, such as civil service and government workers, comparatively disadvantaged and dissatisfied. In June, the blue flu had struck the city as police officers, forbidden to strike, had staged a sick-out. In September, the teachers were to go on strike. The starting wages for a plumber's helper were almost equal to the salary of a police officer or teacher. Some unions, traditionally closed to Negroes, zealously guarded training opportunities. In January of 1967, the school system notified six apprenticeship trades it would not open any new apprenticeship classes unless a large number of Negroes were included. By fall, some of the programs were still closed. High school diplomas from inner-city schools were regarded by personnel directors as less than valid. In July, unemployment was at a five-year peak. In the 12th Street area, it was estimated to be between 12 and 15 percent for Negro men and 30 percent or higher for those under 25. The more education a Negro had, the greater the disparity between his income and that of a white with the same level of education. The income of whites and Negroes with a seventh grade education was about equal. The median income of whites with a high school diploma was $1,600 more per year than that of Negroes. White college graduates made $2,600 more. In fact, so far as income was concerned, it made very little difference to a Negro man whether he had attended school for eight years or for twelve. In the fall of 1967, a study conducted at one inner-city high school, Northwestern, showed that, although 50% of the dropouts had found work, 90% of the 1967 graduating class was unemployed. Mayor Cavanaugh had appointed many Negroes to key positions in his administration, but in elective offices, the Negro population was still underrepresented. Of nine councilmen, one was a Negro. Of seven school board members, two were Negroes. Although federal programs had brought nearly $360 million to the city between 1962 and 1967, the money appeared to have little impact at the grassroots. Urban renewal, 
for which $38 million had been allocated, was opposed by many residents of the poverty area. Because of its financial straits, the city was unable to produce on promises to correct such conditions as poor garbage collection and bad street lighting, which brought constant complaints from Negro residents. On 12th Street, Carl Perry, the Negro proprietor of a drugstore and photography studio, was dispensing ice cream sodas and candy to the youngsters streaming in and out of his store. For safekeeping, he had brought the photography equipment from his studio in the next block to the drugstore. The youths milling about repeatedly assured him that, although the market next door had been ransacked, his place of business was in no danger. In mid-afternoon, the market was set afire. Soon after, the drugstore went up in flames. End of section 13